0: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are my interviews with the star for Tick, Tick, Boom, Andrew Garfield, and the screenwriter, Stephen Levinson. Also with Nicole Ackman's interview with the film's editors, Andrew Weisblum and Myron Kirstein.
2: Hello. Hi. Welcome. I'm Jonathan Larson. I am 29 years old. I work at the Moondance Diner. Okay, One sec. Do we take reservations? No, we do not take we're, we're a diner. I have an original rock musical.
1: Hey, boy genius.
2: And I have spent the last eight years of my life writing. He's getting out. You're going to be rich and famous. And rewriting. Did you crack it yet? Oh, I'm getting so close. And rewriting.
0: Can I hear it?
2: Any day now.
0: Eight years!
2: And the time keeps ticking.
0: You need to ask, are you letting yourself be led by fear or by love?
2: Fear. 100% fear.
0: Andrew, thank you very, very much for taking the time to chat with me today. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Doing really, really well. I love getting a chance to chat with you, especially about Tick Tick Boom here. Um, I wanted to first start off by asking with the recent passing of uh, Stephen Sondheim, you know, Tick Tick Boom is so much about the legacy that one leaves behind. And your performance in this has given hope to young, aspiring theater kids everywhere. I think back to myself when I was 14 years old doing theater in high school and how much a performance like this uh, would have meant to me then and what it means to me even now. So how do you feel about the impact that that's having on people?
2: It's so crazy, man. Just as you say that, I just got a big chill through my body, dude. That's so crazy. And, um, I'm so grateful for you to say that and, and because I've been getting lots of messages from friends, um, young, old, middle-aged some, some of whom are in the theater community, some of whom just have no connection to it whatsoever, who are saying this reminded me of something This reminded me. And I, and I'll share I'll share with you something that I haven't really shared with people, which is just because you've said that and it's come up. Like when Lynn showed me the first cut that he showed me, I got a flash of myself. As a seventeen-year-old, eighteen-year-old drama student
3: mm-hmm.
2: in in its central school of speech and drama in Northwest London, where I was where I trained, and I and I I felt like myself at that age watching, you know, this film. Me at the at the age I'm at now, twenty years on, and I was like, oh man, like I, I want to live that way. <laughs> like yeah. I, I was watching it as an eighteen-year-old my from my eighteen-year-old psyche, going, oh my god, I want i know what i have to do (laughs) it was a cool thing i got transported back even though it's me and it was a very beautiful kind of um moment of going oh no i've i've done that like i've i have lived in according to you know this strange foolish artistic theatrical thread that's been pulling on me since i was 16 years old that everyone told me was probably a, a, a stupid thing to do and i would be destitute and poor and you know not be able to like make ends me and i'd have to do 18 other jobs in order to support myself which is no shame in that and it's a, it's a, the kind of dev- i was like listen i'm willing to do it i'm willing to work at starbucks as a waiter and blah blah and i did for a, a year and a bit but then i'm just so grateful that i get to do this work and, and call it my work i find it so remarkable so thank you for bringing that up and i I yeah, and it's a beautiful thing to know that this film is touching people in that way, and especially young people who, who are maybe on the fence about their dream, and and maybe this is going to be the thing that pushes them, you know, further into it. But but another thing I love about it is that it's a story about failure. It's not about success. So anyone Mm -hmm. young who's watching this is going, oh no, this isn't going to be easy. This is actually a real kind of um, reflection of what it might be like. And even after seeing that, if they still want to do it, that's only the best.
0: That's awesome. Uh, speed round really quick here. Favorite musical number in the movie?
2: Well, it has to be Sunday. Um, because you know, look at what Lynn did with that piece. It's incredible. Like it's absolutely incredible. Galaxy brain, Jonathan Larson honoring Uh, most challenging musical number to perform. Why in the Delacorte solo, piano, live singing, terrifying, massive, emotional journey, kind of an improvised song that I had to act as if I was figuring out how to meet this terrible moment of loss, singing live in the middle of the night, John's sister, Julie Larson's at the monitor, and uh and take two of the live of like the close-up we, we sang live and lynn was like that was it we got it and i was like oh thank god thank god <laughs> and finally
0: um you recently remarked on uh stephen colbert about the passing of your mother and my my condolences by the way mm-hmm. uh jonathan larson's story is so much about making uh the most of the time that we have because we don't know how much time we have left uh you've done so much in your career with so many great performances what is left Uh, for you, Andrew Garfield, with the time that you still have with us?
2: Oh, it's such a good, great question, and not for a speed round, but but like, (laughs) and and, and, and honestly, I don't know, it's a mystery to me, but I think the things, you know, what Jonathan goes through and what I've been through recently as well in terms of an integration of the knowing of loss as part of life, what we've all been through these last two years in large ways and in small ways during this pandemic, um, I think the integration of that loss, and the acceptance that life, if we, if we, if we are to live vulnerably openly with our hearts, then we are going to experience loss upon loss and heartbreak upon heartbreak upon heartbreak. And I think the more we can accept that, the more that will define how we choose to live our lives. And it doesn't have to be clear. There's a, it, but, but I think holding that as a defining force is actually only powerful, so I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be guided. By this new knowledge, um, in a way that will lead me to places that I wouldn't have um, expected, because, you know, I think you know, best laid plans, you know, life's what happens to you when you're when you're making other plans. And I think accepting death, accepting loss, is maybe the most important thing to accepting a a great and meaningful big life.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and congratulations on an amazing, amazing performance. Thanks, man. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye.
4: I don't know what the show is. Why do we play with fire?
1: What if the workshop happens and nothing changes?
2: What then, Jonathan... Maybe I'm just wasting my time. Do you know how many Jonathan Larsons there are? One. Why should we place a trail? There's not enough time. I went to three friends' funerals last year. And nobody is doing enough. I'm not doing enough. Try writing about what you know.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Next Best Picture podcast. Today, I'm talking to Myron Kirstein and Andrew Weisblum, the editors of the film Tick, Tick, Boom. Thank you both so much for talking to me today.
3: Thank you for
1: having us. So first of all, I just want to say that while I love film, I do. Theater really is my first love, and I think that you all have created something really special with Tick, Tick, Boom that a lot of movie musicals aren't able to achieve. And so as a former theater kid, I wanted to say thank you for your work on this movie. And so then sort of playing off of that, Tick, Tick, Boom was originally a sort of very pared down musical on stage. So I know that adapting it to the screen certainly came with a lot of challenges. So can you talk a bit about your collaboration with director Limo Mombranda to figure out how to balance the sort of concert version of the musical that we're seeing and the more narrative portions of the film?
5: Um, well, a lot of it, the film was was made up of a of a number of ingredients. There's the one man show. There's the three person show. Then there's all the kind of autobiographical details about um, Jonathan Larson that both Lynn and Stephen, the writer, found together through all their research, and they kind of made a collage of all that stuff. But it, it was a it was natural for the piece to open up to an autobiographical story and and see how it reflected with his performance as it was documented. And then editorially, I feel that um, it was it was a little trial and error finding the balance between the certain contextual things about the time and place of the early 90s in New York um, to get that up front and center of who uh, Larson was and what his significance was and what that time was in musical theater in, the, in New York City. And then it was just about the momentum of of keeping those things, the juxtapositions of those different ideas playing off each other.
3: Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a theatricality to um, this monologue that sort of one hand kind of feels like Eric uh um, meets like Billy Joel, sort of piano man, <laughs> uh, sucking us in. And, you know, I think there's, we had a lot of fun um, balancing between that monologue and the performance on the stage and then these musical numbers outside of, outside of what's happening on the stage.
5: One of the nice things about it is that, that the whole rock monologue performance functioned as a narrator for the story. So you, you didn't have to depend on it, but you could always kind of touch back on it and not have to reestablish it in any way. And it felt organic. It felt like the things you were seeing musically in the world were really offshoots of the performance.
1: Absolutely. One of my favorite parts of the whole movie is the therapy number where you're kind of cutting back and forth between that performance uh, of Andrew Garfield and Vanessa Hudgens and then the fight that Susan and Jonathan are having. So was that scripted sort of how those cuts would occur or were you really just working with footage of both of those figuring out sort of when to keep uh, cutting back and forth? There
5: There were maybe two or three landmarks that were scripted in terms of how it would launch in and how it might end. Um, but, uh, in between there, it was basically side by side in the script. Um, and the implication was that they were meant to, um, build and crescendo against each other. It was originally quite a bit longer and the piece went increased in a, in a constant tempo change, acceleration. Um, and as we, Worked to trim it, and then Myron worked on it much further, which he can speak about. It, it, trying to condense the, the piece overall, You had to keep that shape, um, which is probably one of the challenges of it. Um, which Andy,
3: Andy's basically saying is that he had no roadmap map <laughs> <laughs> to intercut those <laughs> to intercut those those two things. You know, you basically have uh, fight over here and song here. How about it? Right, <laughs> and so uh, you know he did a great job laying that out, is um, you know um, a really good foundation. And then once I had to go in there to start you know trimming it down, it you know that isn't isn't always easy. But um, as Andy mentioned, there was a lot of tempo changes and what have you. But also just to like not let the fight, you know, accelerate too quickly. And, and also, um, you know, quiet down at the end. And then, um, then you realize, you know, he's writing the song in his head and, um, you know, that's, that's not an easy thing, um, to do
5: by any means. You know, one of the, one of the things that was interesting about it is that I knew it had to be approached in several stages whereby the, the argument scene itself, was cut as its own self-contained scene just to make the scene work. And then um, the musical number was edited that way as well. So we were kind of free when we started to intersperse them to figure out how they played against each other rather than lock ourselves into any particular pattern, because it would be hard to find the in-betweens if you hadn't started from that position. But I think that was the, that's one of the ways that made it easier to figure out what was working dynamically. And then as it evolved, you start to realize you can take certain leaps with it without the argument being particularly linear in its shape. And same with the number.
1: Absolutely. I also wanted to ask about the scene where you have sort of this music video for the song play game, which I thought was just excellently put together and really captures, you know, a lot about that time, I think, and what what music videos were like then. So how did you go about putting that together?
5: It's actually one of the first things that Lynn and I talked about and bonded about was the, you know, certain Yo MTV raps influence from a very specific time and place and what our points of reference would be. And they shot it over several days, just kind of collecting material. And I went back and watched some of our key references and, and tried to ape as many of the uh period of effects that you would see in those videos that probably were pretty um sexy at the time and now have a certain um classic quality to them
1: <laughs> definitely yeah. um and Myron you also worked on in the heights earlier this year right correct? Which was directed by John Chu, but obviously is a musical of lens, and it's a very different musical to Tick, Tick, Boom. But I think that they both have this really fantastic energy that's really helped along by the editing. So I was just curious if there's anything that you feel like you sort of developed working on that musical that you were able to bring to this one.
3: Well, I think uh, the key you, you pinned it right there is just giving the energy and pace and and keeping the throttle up. You know, as far as um, you know, people's attention span with musical members. I mean, In the Heights was much different because it, we were telling so many different stories mm. um, through the guys, the point of view of Usnavi. And whereas this was mostly, you know, you know, Jonathan's point of view. And so it was nice to have um, a little bit more of a, um, a focus on one particular story. And then, you know, um, try to try to be more dramatic with um, your your cutting of music and, 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 uh, the songs and, you know, they're, they're much different. Um, uh, the, the scope isn't as quite as big within the Heights as, uh, with Tick Tick Boom as it is in the Heights. And, um, so I guess, you know, you just try to, you make mistakes when you, you first go around and you try to learn from them.
1: Awesome. I also, one of my favorite things in this movie is that we have some of the real footage of Jonathan Larson at the end and and some bits and pieces from things like Rent opening in the beginning even. And then there's sort of this uh, footage from the film that's made to match that style. So I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about, you know, sort of figuring out how to piece together those sort of actual real life pieces and then making some of the film feel very much like that footage that we have of Jonathan Larson.
5: Well, Alice, Alice's cinematographer and Lynn had the, the instinct to film a lot of the uh, performance stuff on the stage with a video camera, much like was done in real life because that was a, mm. their main reference. So we had that running without a clear indication of exactly where it would be used except for the very end of the film to intercut with the birthday party. Mm. But um, at a certain point during editorial, we knew we had to bring in certain context pieces and um, archival would help us do that to kind of explain some things about um, who Jonathan was. Um, So that evolved slowly where Certain references to behind-the-scenes footage of either Rent or Larson himself or other um, key moments around his life or legacy found their way into the back of the film, the end of the film. Um, And then over time, um, which Myron can explain, is it kind of became a bookend.
3: Yeah, the um, the the end shot of the film inspired me with uh, the betacam with the um, with uh, the birthday at the end, and um, you know there was something to the texture of the betacam footage that was really attractive. So once I knew that the opening of the film was shot with its beta footage, I was I was inspired to try to use it more um, and to you know uh, construct the mo- the beginning of the monologue that way. There was something that drew me in um, right away. Um, Of course, we had this beautiful, you know, 16-9, you know, um, footage to use as well. But I was just like, let's keep it really raw. And then once we had some time, we we figured that maybe we could throw in some archival footage as well as maybe shoot our own sort of um, almost like slice of life beta cam footage with Susan and Jonathan, the diner and can kind of construct our, a little, a little mini documentary that felt um, that, you know, would just draw us in a little bit, get us to like this guy, you know, give us us a little context of his life before we,
5: you know, start the
3: musical. You know,
5: one of the things that um, came up early on with Lynn when we were talking and researching was um, I watched, he gave me some of the archival footage to watch and I saw some of the earlier performance stuff and I was really struck by how raw it was compared to what we think of with musicals now. Um, and and it wasn't very, the performance wasn't particularly polished. It was just kind of energetic and alive, almost like early nineties unplugged feeling to it. And I felt like that was an important thing to hold on to in the performance pieces to make them feel um, spontaneous and believable. Um, and we talked about that to a degree in terms of how it would be shot and when there was, if it ever was handheld and so on and so forth. Um, But also just the sound of it. Um, I think that got carried through, but it's part of the edge of that material that we tried to keep in there.
1: That's amazing. I also wanted to ask just, were there any scenes that were particularly tricky to edit for any reason? I mean, I know there's all sorts of, Things going on musically. There's also scenes with a swimming pool. Just what were the real challenging parts of this? Um, all of the
3: above. Um, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> you know, um, working with Andy is is you know it's amazing to look at his cuts because he makes it look so easy, but there's a lot of hard work that goes into every single one of those edits. But I, I if I if I could just speak to what I you know my work was you know, a lot of what was happening at the beginning and the end of the film, to give people, um, you know, a entrance to this film, a, a introduction to Jonathan Larson, and to to finish the film emotionally is not an always easy thing to accomplish, you know, over the long journey. But, um, you know, I'd say that the musical numbers, you know, they come together, you know, um, you know, easy enough, you know, after you've done, you know, 10 musical numbers in a night, <laughs> you know, um, you know, trying to slip in, you know, shots here and there um, to a roadmap of, uh, of the song is um, that could be easy, but to tell the story dramatically, I think that's, that's always the hardest part is, is trying to, you know, what are the pieces to best um, hold that audience's attention over, you know, hour and a half, two hours?
5: Yeah. You know, I think, I think this isn't dissimilar to what Maren said in here was it The performance pieces somehow are are often the most straightforward because you just find the most dynamic pieces for each moment and kind of build it around those certain landmarks and strategies that you pick of how you use the coverage um, or the shots, specifically when they're designed for something. It's the other material and the intercutting and and condensing of story and making all that focused that becomes challenging because you have a certain structure of how that's supposed to work that's scripted, but it's not always, you know, certainly in this film it it evolves, but you have to find the, the, the kind of language or thesis for it to make it all feel intentional as you condense or simplify or rearrange things. That's always kind of an ongoing challenge. But, you know, if there was a sequence that was challenging specifically, swimming was tricky to figure out, the timing of it all and again the dynamics of it all and making sure that you, the watching someone swimming laps was interesting to look at. The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.
1: Well, I definitely think it came together really beautifully. Thank you. Uh, But just to to finish up, I wanted to ask, um, you know, Tick, Tick, Boom is largely a story about what it means to be a creative person and sort of the struggles that come along with that uh, through obviously telling Jonathan Larson's story. But I just want to say, you know, as, as people who are in a creative industry yourself, is it a story that you connected with and and what do you think is the, the relevance of telling Jonathan Larson's story today?
3: Boy, I, I think it's really relevant to, to myself and almost any artist or anyone who's trying to find their way through work. And <laughs> you know, that, that it's, you know, it's all about that grind, right? You have to keep. You got to kind of pull yourself up after failure, and maybe working on something, or or working on a lot, a lot of things over five, ten, fifteen years, and realize that it, you know, it doesn't come easy, you know. And um, and I think that um, you know, when I first watched the film, I cried like a little a little baby because I because <laughs> I, yeah, I just related to it so much about how, you know, if you just get a little kernel of validation from, you know, from him or was Sondheim, but, you know, to, to just get, to give you just enough of something just to kind of get back up and start doing it again. And Andy and I have been, you know, between the two of us been doing this 20, 30 years and, you know, it's just one job after another where you just get better at what you do and, um, and to see, just to see the, the kernels of what was happening with Jonathan Morrison with him finding his voice and that voice would then end up leading to Rent and then that influencing people like Lynn and many others to make, you know, the musicals of the future. Um, I don't know. It's very relatable.
5: As a character, somebody who's just trying to find their voice in the world is profoundly relatable, not just to artists, I think, um, but also just as a... As, a character, I think it's it's something that all artists go through. All the struggles that he was he was enduring here, trying to figure out, um, you know, what's what's selling out, what's maintaining your integrity, how do you balance your your pursuit of your craft and your friendships and and relationships, and um, you know, when do you cut bait and when do you keep pushing? And finding mentors in your in your life who can support your art and that you end up you know passing it down and paying it forward to other people. These are all things that Larson's story kind of um, amplifies
1: that's fantastic yeah i definitely agree and i also cried like a little baby the first time i saw it (laughs) well thank you both so much for talking to me today to anyone listening if you've not seen tick tick boom somehow yet definitely go see it or if you have seen it watch it again um but i very much appreciate you guys taking the time to uh answer some of my questions great thank Thank you you very much all right, thank you. Have a good rest of your day. It would be a tragedy to
4: give up what you have. No Take off and
1: Fear or love,
2: baby. Don't say the answer. Actions speak louder than, than louder than. They speak louder, louder than. Keep going, Actions speak louder
3: than.
0: Hey, how are you doing today, Stephen? very well. How are you? I'm doing very well, very well indeed. Uh, It's been a very, very exciting uh, past couple of days and more exciting weeks to come as award season trickles on. (laughs)
4: Indeed,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'm here today to talk to you about your adaptation of Tick Tick Boom for the big screen. Lin-Manuel Miranda making his directorial debut with this film. And you also had um, Dear Evan Hansen earlier this year uh, that was adapted from your own uh, stage production of dear heaven hansen so that's yes. you're having a, just a very exciting year all around it seems
4: <laughs> well thank you yes it's been a, it's been a busy year but it, yes very exciting
0: that's great yeah. um so in regards to, to tick boom um i would like to know since you know with dear heaven hansen you had obviously the familiarity of writing uh for the stage and creating it yourself when you were doing tick, tick boom i'm i'm curious to know like what is it like writing for the stage versus solely writing for the screen and Mm. what's the thought process behind especially you know in the realm of a musical uh how does one go about separating the two in terms of what will work best on the screen
4: versus what would work best on the stage totally I, i think you know when you're writing something for the stage in a way there's there's less to figure out in terms of what you're actually seeing from moment to moment versus a screenplay, that's, that's all you're doing, really, is, is you're trying to, uh, or at least this is how I think of it, as you're writing a screenplay, you're really trying to to walk the director and um, all of the designers and actors and everybody through, through what this movie is going to be from moment to moment, scene to scene. What does it look like? Where are we? What's happening? Um, versus on stage, it's a little bit looser. It's a little bit a song in a musical on stage can be five minutes long and and nothing changes except that the actor walks down stage at one point versus in a, a film you know as uh, a producer friend of mine says uh, they call them movies because they have to move <laughs> um, <laughs> which is true and and I think that's sort of the fun exciting challenge of a screenplay for a musical is it's how do you keep how do you keep it moving not just literally but how do you how do you keep the numbers kind of building on top of each other and, and never feeling static? And, and how do you make each of them feel unique? And like um, you're, you're using all of the resources that film can offer to, to, to capture something special in e- in each number, you know, with Tick, Tick, Boom, that was one of the really fun challenges was, was taking all of these disparate songs and figuring out, well, what are we going to be seeing and how do we want to think about these songs? and, and they're tonally so different and stylistically so different. And so that allowed us to have a song like No More, which is which is really a big fantasy sequence with all sorts of fun, imaginative elements. Um, but also a song like Johnny Can't Decide, which is a much more um, kind of subdued, naturalistic song. And, and it's fun to just think of each one of those as its own challenge.
0: Yeah, no, completely. And I'm curious to know, how did you get the job of adapting Tick, Tick, Boom? Who who gave you a call? Was it Lynn? Was it someone else uh, producing the film? Uh, like, how did you come on board the project?
4: Yeah, I, you know, I met with Lynn. My agent told me about it and and asked me if I have any interest in in doing it. And obviously, I, you know, before he finished the sentence, I said, yes, obviously. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I met with Lynn. And as I spoke to Lynn um, in our first meeting, I told him, Uh, That actually, uh, in college, when I had been an actor in college, I did a tiny little uh, upstairs of the theater production of Tick, Tick, Boom with two friends. Um, So I I knew the show really intimately and and loved it. And um, I I think I conveyed that successfully to Lynn uh, in that first meeting. And I I think we shared sort of a, a similar vision for this and also a similar just love. For Jonathan Larson and, and a real desire to, to, to do it right and to tell the story in a way that we thought he would be proud of and um, happy about and you know feeling like like we were telling a story we we always felt like we wanted this story to reach the world and to reach as many people as possible but but at the end of the day it, it had to speak to the people in our neck of the woods in theater it had to speak to them and seem truthful to them and authentic to them because otherwise, it wasn't going to feel truthful or authentic to anyone. Yeah,
0: I was t- I was telling this to Andrew uh, the other day that this story, particularly uh, for myself and others that I've spoken to, as someone who did theater in high school for a brief period mm-hmm. of time and dabbled in wanting to possibly be an actor uh, until I got to co- until I got to college. Yeah. I could have really have used a movie like this when I was younger uh, to give me that inspiration. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine what young uh, people who are in love with any creative art form are feeling when they're watching Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, How does that make you feel in terms of the impact that it's having uh, with Larson serving as an inspiration to keep pushing forward in one's own Mm. creative interests?
4: I mean, I I couldn't imagine a more gratifying response than that. I mean, that is exactly what I would have hoped um, to elicit from an audience and especially to reach artists and people that are grappling with those questions and those struggles. And and to me, the thing that I've always loved about Tick, Tick, Boom is that it is the story of failure. Ultimately, it's not the story of a triumph. It's not the story of rent. Yeah, um, it's the story of a show you've never heard of called Superbia. Uh, and the reason you've never heard of it is because it, it fundamentally didn't work and it didn't work in spite of the fact that Jonathan poured everything into it. He, he spent eight years working on it. He gave it all he had, and it ultimately just didn't happen. And, and for creative people, that's, that's part of our lives, and it's a part of our lives that we don't like to dwell on or, or even discuss. And, and, and when we do discuss those failures, we, we always sort of frame it in, in terms of the inevitable triumph that came out of it. And, and I love Tick, Tick, Boom because it's really about confronting that failure and having to live with that failure and, and, and moving on. But, but there is that moment between the failure and the moving on uh, where you don't have to make that decision. You could just take that failure and quit. And I love that Jonathan didn't, obviously. And um, you know, one of the things that most struck me when Lynn and I, when we first started working on the film, we, we went to the Library of Congress where Jonathan's papers are. And Jonathan saved all of his rejection letters that he got over the years. And there are so many of them. I mean, a truly staggering amount of rejection letters. Yeah. And in a way that's the life of every artist. You know, it, it's a lot of no, but but it really, the the weight of all of those letters really landed on me and, and feeling like, to me, I, I, yeah, I want to tell the story of, of, of what happens when it doesn't work and, and what do you do next.
0: Right. You know, the the movie tells the audience up front in the very beginning that Larson dies young, uh, right when he achieves his greatest success. Yep. Was that an early decision to tell that information to the audience in the beginning versus what I, I imagine other films might have done, mm. which is withhold that information and kind of hit you with a gut punch at yeah. the end?
4: You know, it was a really big struggle for us. From the beginning, it was something that we, uh, Lynn and I talked about endlessly Mm -hmm. um, and really um, struggled to come up with the right answer. And, you know, what we discovered in post, really, as we were starting to show the film to people and introducing audiences to it, is that there was just a huge qualitative difference between people who knew the story already of Rent and of Jonathan Larson and people who didn't. And the people who didn't just didn't get as much out of the film as those who did, and it felt like we were doing a disservice to the audience. not you know in earlier versions, we had been more coy um, about the eventual success that he had and and about the tragedy and and it it began to become clear that that we needed to be a little less coy mm-hmm. and that it really did change the way you perceive the story. Um, for those of us who know the story going in, it, it, it colors everything. It shades everything. The fact that it's called Tick, Tick, Boom, it's about time, it's about mortality. And ultimately, he was grappling with those issues in a way he didn't even realize. So that was where that decision came down, basically, was 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 to make sure that the audience had all of the tools that it needed to really fully understand the implications of this story.
0: Yeah, And you must have done a tremendous amount of research, not just into Jonathan Larson's life, but also going through audio files, demos, writings of all of this music that was made for Tick, Tick, Boom, and probably other uh, works elsewhere, anything that you could get your hands on to weave into the story that you were creating here. Absolutely. And one of the things that had um, struck me while watching this, and you said earlier that Uh, superbia was ultimately a failure Mm -hmm. but man when i see and hear uh some of the work from it in this movie i got to admit there is some interest on my end to see a more finalized fuller version of it at some point in the future do you think that will ever be possible
4: well i mean you know it's also it's one of those heartbreaking things about musical too which is like so many of the songs from Superbia are amazing. and So many of the sequences are amazing. And yet the, the thing itself never quite cohered. Yeah. You know, in the way that I find that a thing that is specific to musicals and it's why they're so maddening, you know, as they can have all of the right elements and yet still something about it just never quite works. I, I would love somebody to figure out how to make Superbia happen. Superbia is even more complicated than Tick, Tick, Boom. We had, I think we had five drafts to go on from Superbia. For, for Tick-Tick Boom that we that we had. In Superbia, there must be dozens uh, uh, over the years. Like he, and they're drastically different from one another mm-hmm. to, to the point that, you know, there's a really interesting evolution in Superbia uh, as it as it kept not getting produced, it became darker and darker, actually, and more and more sort of nihilistic until those last few versions are really, really dark. Um, so you'd have to figure out kind of where to land. But some of that score is just, incredible. And that was actually, you know, one of the most exciting moments in making the movie was that day at the Library of Congress. We went to this tiny little listening room where you could put CDs on and there was a CD of uh, a recording of a Superbia workshop, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And we heard that song Tech," which is in the middle of the movie. It's that song, you know, anybody who ever has or ever will be, anyone will be there. That, that song that kind of ties together the workshop. And we were sitting there and listening to it and just like Lynn and I looked at each other and it was like, well, this has to go in the film. And and that feeling of, I don't know that this had been heard since, you know, 1990, this, this actual recording. I mean, some some archivists had listened to it, but but the world has does not know this music and, and sort of get to be able to put that out there was was one of the great thrills of making this movie.
0: Yeah, totally. I definitely agree with you on that. And you have this narrative framing device which you use to tell the story of Larson on the stage, ultimately telling the story to a captive audience and we ourselves the audience as well. And you're cutting back and forth between the two. And I'm curious to know how much of that uh, was figured out in post via editing and how much of that was in the initial script.
4: You know, most of it is in the initial script. Um, I have to say that was sort of how we always conceived of it was was that way. So it's not like the whole film was told on, on the stage and then we figured out the cuts. The cuts were in the script. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was just sort of the way we we had always talked about it. We talked about movies like um, you know, Big and the Angry Inch and yeah. all that jazz. Um, were two kind of touchstones for us. in in always wanting to kind of anchor it in that central performance so yeah that that was just sort of built in
0: nice nice i love it and then what would you say was i know you mentioned earlier um obviously the bookend sequence of jonathan Mm -hmm. larson's death was a challenge for you and lynn uh, but what would you say was the most rewarding aspect of getting to work on this project for you
4: i think the most rewarding thing was was getting to spend time in, in Jonathan's world and in Jonathan's mind and to get to put his story in my typewriter, basically, uh, to, to get to write through those scenes and with those scenes. And um, the sentiment in the film of, you know, getting knocked down and picking yourself back up and and trying again and trying harder and that the, you know, the life of a writer is to write all of those things are messages that, you know, uh, I'm partly telling myself uh, as an artist. And so it was, it was constantly inspiring to get to tell that story and to, to, to live in this world. Yeah. I I think, you know, I felt this tremendous responsibility from the beginning Mm -hmm. of the fact that I knew I was sitting in a chair that didn't really belong to me. You know, I was sitting where Jonathan should have sat, but that was also the thing that was most inspiring and the thing that kept me hungry to make it right was, was knowing that, that I had huge shoes to not even attempt to fill, but just to, you know, borrow for a moment.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm aware of that you, in your research, w- were able to talk with a lot of people that were close with Jonathan Larson. Yeah. And I imagine that their response to the movie has been positive. But one response to the movie that I'm not aware of, uh, and someone who is involved in the movie, is Steven Sondheim and you know, he tragically did just recently pass away yeah. and I'm curious to know if there was ever any feedback from him, if he ever had a chance to see the movie.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, Lynn, Lynn was very close with Steven Sondheim. And um, so from the beginning, uh, you know, he looked at early drafts of the script uh, or at least early drafts of the scenes that his character was in yeah, and gave feedback and thoughts and ideas, which I mean, he never turned down notes from Steven Sondheim. Um, so he was involved from that point forward and uh, actually did. He saw a cut of the film, I want to say over the summer. And the only part that he quibbled with was was the voice was the it was the message on the answering machine that he leaves at the end, which he said he wouldn't he would not have put it quite that way as we had it. And so Lynn asked him, well, how would you put it? And so he actually sat down and wrote the kind of message he thinks he might have left for John mm-hmm. and Lynn had him record that message. And yeah. so the message that you're hearing in the film is actually Stephen Sondheim this summer or, or fall recording that message. And so his voice is in the film, um, the actual Stephen Sondheim and that is enormously moving to me and um and it's, it's partly the sentiment that, that's, that he expressed in that answering machine message. You know, he has this phrase that he wrote, which is he tells Jonathan, be proud. Yeah, I find that so moving and so simple. And yet it's the thing that when you have those blows. You do feel so much shame and so much, uh, you know, questioning and second guessing and that idea of you made something great. Be proud of that. And so. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very gratified that he got to see the film, and I, th- I think one of the things that has become clear in in the wake of his passing, if it wasn't clear already, is what an impact he had on the next generation of writers, yeah, and how much he gave back. And John was such a clear example of that. I mean, Stephen Sondheim was one of the very, very, very few people in Jonathan's lifetime that that. Responded to his music and it gave him the encouragement to keep going. So I'm glad that we could share that part of the story.
0: That's really, really wonderful to hear. And uh, I would love to just uh, finish by asking uh, for you, um, because, you know, we mentioned before uh, Sondheim working with Larson, Lynn, um, who has been your inspiration for whether it's for writing in film or working in the musical theater scene, television, who has been an inspiration for for you and your work?
4: Oh, boy. I mean, so many people, I, I, you know, the, the the person that immediately comes to mind is um, Paula Vogel, who the playwright, who is my playwriting teacher in college. And, and she did. There's, there's a line that Jonathan says in the film about Stephen Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim says that he wrote a nice song, basically. Yeah. And in the movie, Jonathan says those words were enough to keep me going for the next two years. And in college, my senior year of college, I was about to graduate. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do or what I was gonna do, but I knew I loved writing. And Paula, my playwriting teacher took me out for coffee. She took everyone out for coffee in the class to kind of talk about the semester. And she said, I think if you wanna do this, you can do it. And those words were enough to keep me going for the next two years. Like that's that's directly where that idea came from because it was a, a crucial moment in my life. And the next two years, probably even longer of you know, rejections and struggles to just go back to those words were enough.
0: Well, I hope that you are continuing on for many years. I've uh, really enjoyed oh, your work you so much. in television. And what you've done here with Tick, Tick, Boom has also been really phenomenal as well. And I wish you all the best of luck, Steve. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, thank you. This is such a great conversation. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interviews with the star for Tick, Tick, Boom, Andrew Garfield, the screenwriter, Steven Levinson, and Nicole Ackman's interview with the editors for the film, Andrew Weisblum and Myron Kirstein. Tick, Tick, Boom is now currently streaming on Netflix and has been nominated for the Critics' Choice Award for Best Picture and Best Actor for Andrew Garfield.